Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, thanks for joining us this week on the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and with me, the returning Michael Cox. Michael, great to have you back on the pod. We went slightly off-piste in your absence, but this week, I mean, it's not the subject of the pod, but I guess the return of the Champions League is very much all over your agenda. Yeah, definitely. I think it, it really starts getting exciting at the, the quarterfinal stage, doesn't it? There's no real outsiders left. Maybe Porto, I suppose you could say, but they very much deserve to be there, having beaten Juventus. So, yeah, I think it should be a really good week of fixtures. Slightly peeved that both Tuesday and both Wednesday games are on at the same time. But uh, I don't know who to shout at for that. UEFA, I guess. Uh, but yeah, it should be really good. I'm just excited about 38-year-old Pepe having a big, big say in proceedings. He's already been mouthing off in the build-up, hasn't he, Tom? Uh, no one does it better, I don't think. Uh, Tom Warville, still with us. How are you doing this week? Yeah, good, thanks, Ali. Uh, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I've uh, reverted to wearing a hat this week because the hair situation is, uh, has got wildly out of control. But we're, what, T-minus four or five days from, uh, from a fresh haircut? So um, yeah, doing good all things considered. And this morning you were invited on one of The Athletic's other excellent podcasts, the Ornstein and Chapman show. What did they want to talk to you about? Yeah, don't worry. It was just a a short-term loan, um, I think. Uh, That was mainly to talk about Erling Haaland, uh, who's been linked with uh, a bunch of places. And I've written a piece actually on the site, which is up up yesterday, about him, his game, uh, where, where could suit him. And also the England squad with Greg Evans. We were chatting about Jack Grealish, who's got another shin injury, um, which is baffling for a man who wears children's shin pads, uh, and Ezri Konza as well, uh, and whether he fits into the uh, the England squad ahead of the Euros. Ornstein and Chapman podcast is must-listen each week once you've listened to the ZM pod, of course. So do go and check that out uh, if you haven't already, of course. As for this week's topic on the Zonal Marking pod i think i need to just put together a brief explainer because as i'm sure the listeners will know we had a remarkable match in the premier league on the weekend newcastle 2 tottenham 2 the scoreline does not tell the whole story there and it it basically got me thinking about what i consider to be the most entertaining matches that the the matches that as a neutral i want to to invest my time in because there's so many games on the television at the moment and it's almost impossible to watch all of them and so I'm trying to work out my schedule each weekend work work out which are the sort of games that I should watch and look personally and I think this is entirely subjective I like watching games where I feel both sides have a, a good chance of winning and will be proactive in trying to win rather than you know maybe a sort of attack versus defense style affair which often gets chucked up when some of the top teams are playing teams in the bottom half of the table so the idea was basically 
is there a way of understanding which games are likely to fit the bill of being both open and even matches ahead of time? You might think it's as easy as saying, well, these are two good attacking teams, but I suspect that's not always borne out after the fact. So I haven't heard or read too much on this, and I just realised over the weekend that as presenter of this podcast, I'm in a good position because I've got access to two people in Michael and Tom who could probably find some answers in the tactics, in the numbers, in the context around these games. So we've decided to look at the five games that we consider the most open and even in the Premier League this season. And Tom, I set you to task firstly putting together this list of five games. How did you go about it? Yeah, so my method here was was pretty simple. I got all of the um, XG scores for every single Premier League game this season and tallied them up. So you have a kind of total XG score for a given game. And then looked at all of the, through all of these games, uh, and filtered out those which were, I guess, dominated by one side or the other. So we wanted a, a share of the XG from the home side, which was between, I think it's between 70% and 30%. So let's say Man City played Burnley. If Man City had 90% of the XG from that game, that wouldn't be a game that interests us because they've obviously dominated. So that's a, an okay proxy to try and find kind of a fair and open match. So from that, that number also includes penalties because uh, as you kind of see, I think they tell a good part of the story and a good reason why some games can have penalties, but there are even more chances and it's not just kind of boosted by by one penalty, even two. So from that, we've got a list of, I think, five games of which the XG score is, is high, it's balanced between the two teams. Uh, and I think they're all... There's a there's a kind of common thread between them all, but perhaps not. But I guess something that we'll we'll get into as we discuss through the uh, the different games. Okay, so Tom has whittled down all the games in the Premier League this season to give us a top five. We're going to work through that now, starting with game number five. This was on Boxing Day. Arsenal hosted Chelsea. Arsenal at the time were 15th and they picked up only two points in their previous seven games, while fifth placed Chelsea. Well, their performances had just started to dip as well. They'd lost two out of three on their way in and been poor in victory against West Ham. Michael, the match finished 3-1 to Arsenal, 2.1 to 2.6 in terms of XG, a total of 4.7 expected goals generated for four goals. It is certainly, as this fixture tends to be over the years, was an open and entertaining game. But what was the story of the game? Yeah, it was a funny one. I mean, with such a high XG and Arsenal scoring three goals, you think, well, their goals were coming from clear-cut chances. I actually think you can argue they didn't create any clear-cut chances, really. I mean, uh, two of the goals were out of nothing. One was a free kick from Xhaka. The other was a cross shot from Saka. Uh, did he mean it? I'm not sure he did, actually, but went into the uh, goal off the far post. Um, so I, maybe the one notable thing, and this becomes a theme when we look at these games, is both sides had a penalty. Lacazette scored one for Arsenal. Jorginho had one saved for Chelsea. Um, and I think that is obviously... It's a major factor this season, isn't it? Because we've seen so many penalties. It feels to me like we're getting penalties for quite minor things in the VAR era. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if Tom has the figures on how much that contributed in the XG. Yeah, so I think it was a, about a third of the XG in this game overall. So penalties, depends who you ask. I think Opta give them at 0.79 and stats more at 0.75, but essentially two-thirds, uh, sorry, three-quarters of the time, they result in a goal. So, yeah, that was a, a large proportion of this match, but also both sides created two other big chances aside from the penalties, which would have had decent numbers for in terms of the individual XG of, of those shots as well, which would have chipped away at that 4.7 total overall. 
Tom, here's my first uh, boring question about the uh, mechanics of XG of the day. How is there a discrepancy for penalties between two different companies? That seems like it should be the one thing where everyone agrees there's a certain... You know, I could work that out. I could work out the XG of a penalty if I really wanted to. Uh, so, Is there any reason for that? I think the Opta one was based on just a sample of games going back quite far, just in the Premier League perhaps. And I assume Statsman have done a wider sample, which again is interesting that is it that even though the quality of the goalkeepers and the shooters goes up, the XG of a penalty in the Premier League is higher than that in other leagues where the spot kick takers are more likely to miss or hit the post or, or not score and the keeper's less likely to save. So it's uh, yeah interesting, but I think that's the reason why. And Michael... What was the you know what was your tactical breakdown of this game? I, I certainly take your point that the penalties helped generate a high XG number. That Arsenal's goals themselves were were not you know were, were some somewhat fortunate in many ways. But you know outside of the goals and the penalties themselves, what, what was the tactical battle? What was the story of the game? Well, I think maybe the major story was that Chelsea struggled in front of their own defence. Kante had a really difficult game. That was interesting itself because. Obviously, for a couple of months, Arsenal hadn't really offered much threat in the number 10 position. And then Smith-Rowe came in and they were causing the opposition more problems. Um, Mendy's distribution as well caused issues on a couple of occasions. There was one time where he played the ball straight to Lacazette. Lacazette had a chip that I think uh, I think Mendy just managed to turn around the post. But again, what becomes a thing when we look at these games is a lot of chances, a lot of good chances come when the ball is one high up, whether that's through pressing, whether it's through counter-pressing, whether it's through almost luck. Sometimes, of course, it's just the defence playing the ball straight to a forward. So, yeah, there were a few chances like that as well. In terms of the overall tactics, I think the key was Arsenal's fullbacks overlap really well. Chelsea's wingers didn't didn't trap back very effectively. And Arsenal played a few good cutbacks, both from Bellerin and from Tierney, um, which I'm not sure whether that would generally lead to high XG in, in terms of the quality of chances. But that was a key factor. But yeah, I'd say in terms of where the big chances came from, um, certainly from Arsenal's perspective in terms of creating chances, a lot came from winning the ball high. Tom, Chelsea certainly came, as they often did under Frank Lampard, with the intention of, of keeping the ball, of dominating the possession numbers. Did, did that, you know, we know that that wasn't always necessarily the, the best method uh, for them to succeed, but did that, you know, was that definitely the case in this game? Yeah, so looking at the um, the kind of sequence numbers and possession numbers, which for those that kind of don't know what the way that those work is, you stitch together all the events when one team kind of has a continuous chain of of the ball, a chain of possession, and you get some interesting data from that in terms of like speed, number of passes, number of times those reach the final third, and things like that. And and from that we see that Chelsea had fifteen sequences with ten or more passes in them, and just four of them for Arsenal. And then that that leads into the fact that Chelsea had sixty percent of the possession overall. So it does show that Chelsea's uh, you know, setup in this game was lots of the ball, worked into wide areas. And I think the the goal that Tammy Abraham did score came from a move like that across from the right-hand side. And he kind of, I think, chested it into the net from, from close range. Whereas Arsenal were very much kind of sitting back. Their PPDA was a lot higher. So they were allowing Chelsea to do that and then probably maybe looking to counter afterwards. The speed at which Arsenal attacked upfield was, was a lot faster as well. So um, yeah, this game very much on paper if you boiled it down looked like one where Chelsea dominated possession tried to create chances and Arsenal 
hit them on the break, managed to to win a penalty at some point, score a free kick, and yeah, didn't really didn't really create a lot, but um, stylistically, that's how the the kind of tactical battle played out. And Michael, I think over the course of this pod, we will hear the same phrases uh, a couple of times when talking about these games and when talking about the the discussion as a whole, but. I feel like game state needs to be brought up here because it's certainly a factor in this game. You know, I want to find the games that were most open and even, but even though the XG numbers look fairly similar, a large part of that is down to what the score was itself, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like you say, on the XG, Chelsea scored, Chelsea's was 2.6, Arsenal's 2.1. So from that, you think Chelsea were the better side, but actually they were trailing for the vast majority of the game, including 3-0 at one point. And a lot of their goals came very, sorry, a lot of their XG came very late. I mean, 0.6 after 83 minutes, late flurry of chances end up on 2.2. You would think that is almost, is it less valuable than if it came at 0-0? I suppose it is. Um, and yet there were chances recorded as, you know, the same amount in XG. So yeah, the, the game state uh, does influence things. And I think just the fact that they went behind relatively early, I think after about 25 minutes. Um, and then had to chase the game. Obviously, that means Chelsea, uh, there's no on them to create chances and it means they throw them in forward, leave more space at the back. So, yeah, this was, I mean, I remember watching this and thinking it was a very open and entertaining game. So, I'm pleased the XG, uh, yeah, backs that up. <laughs> yeah, that one snuck into our top five. Just ahead of it, game four, we had five expected goals total and five goals scored between Leeds and Leicester. This game was in November. It was fourth versus sixth heading into the weekend, but Leicester left 4-1 winners. Uh, the XG leads 2.1, Leicester 2.9. Michael, this is the the first entry from Leeds United and the first entry from Leicester City, but not the last for either side. And I remember this game as one which, from a neutral perspective, always felt like it was going to be a cracker and it absolutely lived up to the billing. Yeah, it did. I mean, the thing I remember about this game was it was played on a really, really wet pitch. uh, And that got me thinking about whether a wet pitch creates a good game, whether it creates goal-scoring chances. You know, players always talk about the, the pitch being slick and being easy to kind of drill passes across. I think it's probably more likely to mean uh, defensive slips as well, isn't it? Made me think about that game between Bielsa's Athletic Bilbao and Guardiola's Barcelona at the San Mames many years ago. Um, but yeah, th- this was a really entertaining game. A couple of kind of familiar themes from the last one. There was a penalty in, in this, uh, scored by Leicester, scored by Tielemans, and also an instance of a goal coming from a really poor pass in defence, actually a back pass by Robin Koch who underhit it and that meant uh, Leicester got in for basically an open goal. Um, so yeah, again, I think winning the ball high up was quite crucial in the high XG from this game. Yeah, the metrics paint a great picture of this game um, too. I mean, looking at the number of possessions in the games, so that's the, the number of times which the ball changes hands between sides. There were 105 per team, um, which is th- roughly 30 more than, than your average game in the league, in the Premier League this season. So the ball was changing hands a fair amount. And I think that probably comes down to Leeds' pressing style. The way that Leicester were looking to play was, was quite quick. And speed-wise, I mean, we can measure the speed at which a team moves the ball upfield based on kind of the distance they move upfield directly and then the time it takes. And from that, we get this kind of metres per second, which I think on its own, 
own, it's kind of tough to visualise. So, I mean, Leicester's direct speed was 2.1 metres per second, which on its own doesn't really mean anything. But that was in the top 5% of all kind of teams in games this season. So really, really fast from Leicester and show that they were definitely playing a kind of countering fast style. Whereas for Leeds, they were in the 40th percentile with their speed. So very slow, um, maybe more slower than usual for Leeds, looking to kind of build from the back. Um, But the most interesting stuff for me was that Leicester's possessions, which... Uh, kind of got to the final third, ended there 28% of the time. Whereas for Leeds, it was half the time, just over half the time, 52%. So Leeds were fantastic at being able to build and get into Leicester's attacking third loads of times, but maybe didn't turn that into shots too efficiently. And that's where you know you can dig deeper and look at like how efficient a side was in terms of turning possession into shots. Um, but then from that, obviously, if Leeds are getting into Leicester's third a lot, then Leeds are open at the back. And I think that gives you the opportunity for them to kind of attack and transition and create plenty of shots and plenty of, of high quality efforts at that. It was still early in the season, Michael, but already something of a narrative building for both of these sides that Leeds were employing this this basically order of chaos to games, um, but potentially were slightly naive was often the word used against the very top teams. And this is when Leicester were, it was considered certainly establishing themselves as a top team in the league. Does that kind of reflect how this played out? I mean, the the 4-1 win made it look like Leicester coasted here. What was the factor between them pulling away? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Leicester's pressing was very effective. They did force mistakes high up. I mean, in terms of the XG, I think the interesting thing is uh, two of the goals were open goals um, when, when Meslier had been taken out of the equation by a very... Selfless pass, one was uh, Vardy to Barnes for the opener, I think. And then later on, it was uh, Under rolling it to Barnes. Tom, is that a thing that is taken account into XG? Is there an you know an open goal box checked when it comes to Opta's calculation? Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, I guess, with the Opta model, it, up until I think so recently, the model that they use, it just comes under big chances. So an analyst will log a big chance if they... You know, think the the striker should realistically score. So, the open goal wouldn't explicitly be in there. Now, Opta kind of have made a, a new model. Whether that's the one that's rolled out, I don't think that's the case right now. But what the new model looks to do is kind of unpack all those things that big chance takes into account. So, the clarity of a chance, how much of the goal you got to aim at, is the player under pressure, an open goal, and kind of unpick these things out individually. And the reason you do that is because you have a model, say stats bombs, which takes into account. Um, kind of position of goalkeeper, position of defenders on a given chance. So it's far more granular data that goes into the model. Um, And over an individual game, you might get numbers on chances which differ quite a lot um, because of this granularity. But over a large sample of games, you'll probably get fairly similar um, XG figures um, for leagues, teams, games, etc. Game three also includes... Leeds United and it was their game against Manchester United in December it was the first league game between these old rivals in 16 years Uh, it finished 6-2 to Manchester United the XG 3.7 to Manchester United and 1.8 to Leeds so we got eight goals from 5.5 expected Um, the match reports well Tom they use the words hectic and frenzied and a little like what I said about the Leicester Leeds game it always felt like it was going to be like this so already three games in I'm feeling like maybe we can just predict these games with our gut Uh, was it always going to be like that yeah I think this is a great example of where Leeds is kind of man marking was 
picked off by by United and, and Solskjaer and kind of realised how they could maybe turn this into a, a bit more of a basketball game than a football match, really. I mean, there were 43 shots in this overall, which is the most in a game this season. Um, and it, I think if you look at each of the goals, there's quite a... At least for United, there's a similar situation where there's just a lot of United runners going forwards and they've just been able to broke broken the, the Leeds kind of press and there's a lot of players moving around and it's just obvious that they've just hit them in transition really, really well. So, I mean, Scott McTominay scored two goals really early on. The first one breaks to him, Bruno Fernandes is running with the ball upfield. Um, Daniel James makes a really nice kind of decoy run, similar to the one we saw on Monday night by Mikel Antonio for, for Jesse Lingard. And Scott McTominay... I would say go back and if you can find the highlights, watch it because he hits the ball so nicely and the sound the ball makes is, uh, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed watching that one back. And then the second is from Mateus Click actually failing to track McTominay after kind of a throw-in situation and that's also something which I didn't mention about the game before but Yuri Tielemans scored a goal from, from open play in the, the Leeds-Leicester game and that again was the situation where Click is supposed to be watching Tielemans, there's too much space between them and I don't think it's a speed thing, it's just a lack of awareness. So things like that, that you know, poking holes in, in this man-marking scheme is how United were able to create lots of chances in this game. So I don't think it's a surprise, Michael, that tactically, aside playing under Marcelo Bielsa, are always appointed viewing for, for any neutral. But also the, the, the extra layer here is that Solskjaer's game plan worked perfectly as well. Yeah, it does. As uh, as Tom says, I think they exploited the man marking really well. I think McTominay was a perfect player for kind of bursting into space. I mean, the game really was won in the first 10 minutes. I was doing an analysis of this for The Athletic. And yeah, after the first 10, 20 minutes, it was almost not that relevant because it felt like the game was Put your was feet won. up. Yeah, exactly. It's a very easy one to go for. And I think that is maybe a pattern we see from some of these games because I know you're keen to, to find the patterns that link all these matches, Ali. And I think maybe it's it's an obvious thing to say, but just one side doesn't protect in front of their defence very well. You know, I think that Arsenal-Chelsea game was maybe an anomaly in terms of Arsenal created a few good chances from crosses and cutbacks. But in general, there's just been an issue for one of the sides in terms of you know, the, the holding players or the holding player is not doing his job, not doing their job. And I think this is a, a really obvious one we see here. I mean, uh, Calvin Phillips really struggled in this. And I know he's had a good season, particularly with the ball. It's part of the England setup, probably going to be in the England squad for the Euros, but he was taken off at half time because he's really struggling here just to cover that space. And I think some games like this one, you can just see the problem with Leeds man marking. They get dragged all over the shop. Slightly odd quirk, uh, the fact that Stuart Dallas, in the previous game we mentioned, scored a 0.01 goal against Leeds, which was basically a cross that just flew in. He scored a 0.03 goal here. So not sure we can say there's any concrete evidence to link the two, but it, it's slightly odd that in games with high XG, Stuart Dallas seems to pull out a a mad shot and like uh, like Tom says I mean you know there are some people of course not the ones listening to this podcast that don't like the kind of XG thing but 42 shots is incredible isn't it I mean one every two minutes pretty much that that really sums up how crazy this game was and I think Leeds is, is maybe a bit of a cliche to say this about them but they really don't know when the game is lost do they they were you know 4-0 down at one point and just kept going for it and I think that's an obvious factor that makes a high XG game. They didn't just sit back and say, well, we'll try and keep the score down. They really believed they could come back and, and get back into it. And and there was one point 
in the second half where I thought maybe they could do it. They didn't, but they created a great game. I, I do wonder with Leeds whether like the evolution of I mean, Bielsa's not going to evolve at this point into any sort of game management, but you know, do you look for that in another coach with them who plays the same style that fits this group of players? But um, I mean, this is, game isn't a great example because there were there were two two or three goals down really early in the match, but like they just don't take the foot off the gas at all. And I think in some situations that will perhaps turn draws into wins, but also it, it could potentially turn wins into draws as well. I'd be interested to to hear you guys' take on. I mean, with Bielsa in general, it doesn't feel like he's ever had game management in mind, um, really. But it also feels like, and tell me if I'm wrong, you know, we're in April now and we haven't necessarily seen a game like these ones that we've just spoken about for the last few months for Leeds, which might just be luck, but might be partially by design as well. Yeah, maybe tiredness is coming into it as well, not just for Leeds, but I think for um, across the league, just the schedule this season has is, is really drained players. I think particularly for the um, for the sides who've been competing in Europe, I think most of the games we're looking at, at least one is of the so-called Big Six or Big Seven or whatever you want to call it, but the sides in European competition. Leeds obviously the exception there. But I think tiredness has affected a lot of things in the league. I don't know whether it's the same for the XG. I... I Expect it is, but certainly the goals per game rate. I mean, we did a podcast probably seven or eight games in about why the, the goals per game rate was the highest it's been. We basically said that was a bit of a freak thing. And that's obviously it's dipped to, I think, actually a lower than usual rate compared to the past few seasons now. So, yeah, I think tiredness has played a part in that. That's interesting. Um, game two now, this was also back in November. It was first placed at the time, Leicester versus third place, Liverpool. And Leicester had won six of their eight games up to this point to be top. Liverpool were, by this point, already ravaged by injury. They were without Van Dijk, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Henderson and Mo Salah for this game. But they won 3-0 and the XG was 3.7 to Liverpool, 1.9 to Leicester. So 5.6 expected goals total, somewhat shortchanged with only three goals. Uh, Michael, how did this one play out tactically? Yeah, I was a bit surprised to see this one up there. I remember watching this game. It was entertaining enough, but I don't remember thinking it was a real thrilling game, perhaps because, you know, in terms of the goals, if not in terms of the XG, it was one-sided. I mean, this was a game where I thought probably not that many occasions Liverpool faced a side that plays a high defensive line are prepared to go and try and take on Liverpool at their own game almost. And that created a lot of space in the channels for Liverpool to break in behind, particularly Mane. I remember Fafana had a bit of a difficult game here after a very good start to his Leicester career. Um, kind of missed a couple of interceptions and, and Liverpool got in behind. I mean, maybe the interesting thing here is that for all the XG, the the opener, which was maybe the crucial goal in the game, was an own goal. A corner just hit Johnny Evans and bounced in. Tom, presumably there's no way that own goals can kind of be accounted for in terms of the XG. I feel like we're absolutely peppering Tom with some XG. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is, this is both a, a podcast about open and even games and the extent to which we can uh, predict them. And also really, really, really tough questions for Tom Warville about the expected goals metric. Yeah, thankfully I'm, uh, I'm battle-hardened from answering them in the past, so that's absolutely fine. So yeah, we, we don't give own goals and expected goal value because I guess they aren't 
shots like they're just things that have situations that have happened and I was thinking about this and thinking could you try and kind of give Liverpool the XG of a chance that let's say it wasn't Johnny Evans who came off the back of his head and in the net if it was Sadio Mane could you give him the XG of that chance but I think you then get into really murky waters where okay well what about all the other situations where the ball's ricocheted off a player and not gone for an own goal and it's still saved or gone behind and things like that and I just think that otherwise you have to kind of have this outcome bias where you only give XG on own goals and not kind of like missed own goals and I think it's probably just there's there are more important things to tackle in football and and arguably in life than uh measuring <laughs> own goals not for you with, this with... is your this is your entire life Tom, <laughs> quantifying chances and situations on the football pitch but yeah I do take your point um I mean the, for me this game as a, as a whole it's interesting Michael said before around the key to getting good chances is kind of pressing and winning the ball high up and I thought that this game for Liverpool was an example of where it's it's probably more getting the ball into that area and, and obviously pressing and winning the ball higher up is one way, but I thought Liverpool just got through or round Leicester so easily. I mean, uh, Diego Jota scored the second goal, which from his, was from an Andy Robertson cross, of course, on the left-hand side. And there, at the time that Robertson hit the cross, there were seven players behind the ball, but the cross obviously just goes completely over the defence. Jota's movement means that he's essentially one-on-one with the keeper and he nods it in. And then... Um, Sadio Mane has a chance just after that and the ball's kind of come up from a clearance Firmino's beaten uh, Papi Mendy in the air uh, which isn't too hard Jay's Milner plays a single pass which puts Mane through and again at the time of Milner's pass there were seven players behind the ball and that's just the example of the Wesley Fofana kind of missed interception that, that Michael mentioned earlier so here it was just Leicester had bodies there but they just weren't remotely stodgy in the middle of the park they are actually quite easy to, to slice through and uh, attack uh, attack Leicester in the box really from there so was that the story of the game uh, or does that not quite reflect the the impact that Leicester themselves had on the game no I agree with you that's that's what I thought when I watched the game I thought it was pretty one-way traffic again I mean I think the the fact that Leicester went behind relatively early in the game and had to chase it meant that they probably played even higher up the pitch than they would and there were more chances for Liverpool to break in behind and create some very good chances. But uh, yeah, there are some XG, you know, scores that surprise you based upon the game. And I must say this was one of them. Well, this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So far, I think just looking at the fixtures themselves, Chelsea Arsenal, Leeds Leicester, Leeds Manchester United, Leicester against Liverpool. I feel like it's so far not that surprising, to be honest, which I was a little bit disappointed about. But of course, game one, the most open and even game in expected goals terms in the Premier League this season happened just a few days ago and it was Newcastle United 2, Tottenham 2. Newcastle 4.3 expected goals versus Tottenham's 2.7 expected. Seven expected goals generated in total, only four goals. I mean, this is a a huge outlier, Michael. What the hell happened this weekend at St James's Park? Yeah, this was odd. And, And again, another one that surprised me slightly. I watched the game, thought it was obviously entertaining, Two all probably felt about right to me. Certainly didn't expect to come off that and think this has been the most chaotic game of the season. Um, and again, I think it's worth just getting Tom to clarify a slight point about the XG here because obviously there's different models with different XG figures at the end of games. 
Newcastle's, according to Ops, was 4.3. Uh, another uh, data company had it as 2.6. And I think this is because Newcastle had two examples. I think certainly the Joelinton chance in the first half and then probably the Willett goal where there were two big chances in one move because of a rebound, a goalkeeper save or ball hit the woodwork. So presumably different people record that in different ways, Tom. Yeah, you're kind of paraphrasing David Brent there and I was going to try and do it like me, Opta, Michael Understat, Ali, FB Ref, sometimes Michael Cayley's Twitter account. But it's very true that there are different data sets and different methods for how people kind of come up with XG. And, I, you know, it is a, it's a trying to measure something objectively, but it is inherently subjective itself. There's not like a true X, XG model, really. There's just different types. But what you have with the, the Opta model is it does adjust for rebounds. So what it does is it looks at, say, that Dwight Gale chance, let's say there's like a 60% chance and then a 30% chance. Now, if you just add up the XG, you'll get a 90% or 0.9 XG chance for Dwight Gale there, which isn't strictly true because he's had two chances which are of lower quality than that. So you can kind of look at what's the likelihood of not scoring both and then take that away from 100% and then you get the chance of him scoring from either of those chances. And then that is kind of his XG value, not for the shot, but kind of the two chances in that same situation. So that's what Optus model does. Statswell's model, I think, does it slightly differently where it just looks at the highest XG created in that possession. So they'll just look at the second attempt by Gale which is the higher quality chance of the two and then another thing which Statsman has which Opta doesn't and I think that's a big reason for some of the differences we've seen in different models is that Statsman will add a a measure of where the shot is kind of struck so if you've got like a header and it's the ball's really high in the air and it's difficult to actually get any contact on versus a shot which is struck perfectly on the ground and you're not having to get your leg you know really high up or something like that there's some shots where you're looking to be like "Mm, the the location is really good, but the actual attempt itself is difficult difficult because of the way the ball's bounced to where it is. So that's another way that those individual XGs on the on the shots can differ between providers and models. Um, and that's why you see Opta as 4XG for Newcastle here and others have 2.6, 2.7. What about the game itself, Michael? Because the reason this feels like such an outlier is that you know, Newcastle under Steve Bruce, especially against the very top teams in the league, have generally laid down and allowed their tummies to be tickled uh, over the last few seasons. And a Tottenham side under Jose Mourinho, again, n- not known either for you know really taking the game to any opposition, but equally, theoretically, should be half decent at defending. So what were the reasons behind this game being so open? Well, I thought Newcastle looked really open between the lines. And again, I go back to them, you know, a side involved in one of these games, not protecting their defence well with players in the holding midfield position. I thought it was noticeable that for both Spurs goals, you know, there was a Hoiberg pass to Dumbele, in Dumbele, I should say, to break through the midfield really quite easily. It wasn't a particularly penetrative or kind of incisive ball. It wasn't you know, a real tight situation. It was kind of just an open pass. They could walk through the midfield very easily. So that was pretty notable. And I think as well, it it wasn't really a, a classic mistake in possession or an example of pressing, but um, Emil Kraft completely gifted Kane the first goal by just playing the ball against him in a situation where I, I just can't work out why he did that. So there's been a lot of kind of quite silly giveaways in these games. Maybe goes back to the Klopp thing about pressing or gegenpressing, being the best playmaker. A lot of the big chances here in the high XG 
has been winning the ball high up or defenders making a mistake or whatever. It's not necessarily been about, you know, a classic playmaking situation. So, uh, yeah, again, I mean, it, it surprises me that this game was up there in terms of the XG. But, yeah, when you watch your back, I suppose the, there were some really big chances and a lot of them came from silly defensive mistakes, I would say. And, Tom, if we're starting to build a, a picture of an open, entertaining, chaotic game and, and understanding that there are some things that can't be predicted. Um, are we seeing in this game, maybe more so than any of the others, that just errors being committed, especially in the defensive third, are going to play a huge part in this? Yeah, definitely. I think that there's the first situation of the Joe Linton goal where I think there's three chances where Spurs try and clear the ball and they just fail each of them. And then you've got Joe Roden, who is kind of a man stuck between two bus stops doesn't know whether to go forward or backwards between going towards the ball or backing off uh, and kind of opening space there or backing off towards Joe Linton and cutting off that passing lane and in, in the end he kind of backs off towards Hugo Lloris and, uh, and opens up a lot of space there and then yeah the, the the craft kind of like I don't know what he's trying to do it reminds me a lot Ali of, of when we once played FIFA together and you battered me and I was kind of trying to, you know, you try and pass out of that situation because you have the ball at the back and you're like, I can build a move from here and then you just get smashed and someone will, will tap in the rebound. So yeah, that's it's called laying, it's called laying pressing traps, Tom. I don't know if you've, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever tried to implement that, but no, I'm right think, up there. Considering we've, we've played together, Ali, you know, I definitely don't remotely <laughs> think about that. I'm definitely the more of the Leeds Manchester United school of thought in, uh, in that situation. But yeah, again, this is where I mean we can talk about experience and things like this and uh, and trying to measure errors in football, but I think that um, that is one of just inexperience or a bit of defensive naivety leads to high quality chances. Which I think if you have a, a player in there who I mean Kraft doesn't feel like he's played a lot for Newcastle, definitely hasn't hasn't kind of started or been a starter throughout the season. You know maybe if you have a, a more experienced centre back or he's got a few more games under their belt, they just have in their mind clear the ball here and Kane doesn't get a really high quality chance uh, off the back of it. Okay, we've got our top five then. Now it's time to see if in researching and putting together this pod, you're able to come up with with any answers. Michael, looking at that group of five games as a whole, what are the, the similarities? What are the themes, either tactical or otherwise, that you think have contributed to them making our top five? Uh, I would say game state is a big factor in terms of um, you know whether one side has been winning or whether it's been a draw at that point in time. I mean, most of the games here had an early goal. Uh, in one of the games, there was a third-minute goal. In another of the games, there was a second-minute goal. Um, and in none of the games was it uh, even, was was the score a draw for more than 37 minutes. So basically, the majority of all these games, one side is being forced to chase. And not only does that mean that they are more desperately trying to create chances or big chances hopefully than they normally would obviously means there's more space at the back for the opposition to counter and I think when you look at these games they tend to be I mean it's it's obvious but if you have big chances they tend to be kind of end-to-end games I think end-to-end matches tend to come when one side is forced to make the running Um, obviously if a game is nil-nil for a long period not only does that logically imply that there probably haven't been many big chances because it's still nil-nil but also I think teams tend to Think about, should we settle for a point? Should we kind of stick or twist? If if one side is winning, you don't have that issue. So yeah, game state for me, and an early goal, preferably, would be uh, something that contributes to a, 
a high XG game. I build on the back of that as well and say I was kind of spitballing ideas with with Mark Carey, who's been on this podcast before, another analytics writer for The Athletic. And he had this idea of kind of season state, which I hadn't really given much of a label to before, but we all inherently know what it, it means. I mean, Newcastle at the moment are playing for their lives. They're in a relegation battle. This fixture between them and Tottenham at this stage in the season is, is arguably a very different one if they played earlier in the season and, and perhaps something of that comes into it where even before the first whistle the way that Newcastle are going to approach the game um, is kind of set in stone they need to be open they need to attack because of the way or because of where they sit really in the in the league table that's quite interesting because I think in football betting world there are definite theories on kind of what you're talking about there season state uh, I know that you know if you look at the the, the prices for the over 2.5 goals line, for example, where the, they're always much higher in the last game of the season and maybe the penultimate game of the season as that sort of desperation, I suppose, as you've touched on there, is very much a, a bigger factor than maybe it would be midway through the season. So it'd be interesting just keep, to keep an eye out in the last few game weeks of the Premier League season if there there appears to be more open games, more goals being scored in those games because of, of a seasonal state. Um, and... To a certain extent, I'd like to understand some of the contributing factors to the perfect storm, I guess, something that, that kind of guarantees uh, a relatively open and even game. And it feels like from what you guys have said, a high line and or a high press feels like a, a fairly solid contributing factor. Maybe teams that play out from the back as well versus teams good in transition. Are these all, all fair contributors, key factors to the perfect storm? Yeah, I feel not defending the transition is key. I mean, the talk about the, the Leeds games against Manchester United and Leicester are both notable where, you know, Leeds man-marking system across the pitch really hasn't helped them in these. You know, you think that they've just... There, there are situations which for some teams just there isn't an opportunity to attack quickly whereas with Leeds there is and it's because like Leeds will not have players in a given position on the pitch unless there's an opposition player there whereas if you play some of the same situations against say West Ham um, you know you've got Rice and Suchek who are shielding the area you've got a holding midfielder who actually holds instead of kind of follows his opposite number around so um, I think that is a big one um, uh, just being able to kind of control that transition and instead of being superman marking actually control the space and not the 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 men um and i think that is for leeds at least that's why they're both they're both so exciting for a neutral uh, and also why we've seen so many open xg games with them in this list michael uh, anything tactical on that front i mean you talked about game state uh, anything tactical that you think could be considered a trend here yeah certainly that point in terms of not shielding the space in front of the back four you know with the, the holding midfielders i think sometimes called the red zone isn't it in terms of the two holding midfielders and the two center backs that kind of area i think the more you look at these games the more you do realize why coaches are so keen to really protect that zone and maybe to show the opposition wide if possible so yeah that and and the high press and just regaining the ball high up the pitch I think is a, a big factor not not all of them are kind of classic high press situations but certainly getting the ball close to goal and yeah a couple of them uh, in terms of actual why the chances are high xg is an obvious thing to say but an open goal obviously increases that as well and a uh, few factors combined and you have a few of the games we've, we've mm. uh, looked at today so some of it can kind of be predicted ahead of time but a lot of it is circumstantial you know an early goal uh, a mistake here or there that really lights the touch paper for for things to get super lively um it, it's fascinating to me that this season you know we've looked at five games there 10 teams in total uh, and only newcastle 
uh, are involved outside of the so-called big six plus Leicester plus Leeds and I'd be interested to know what it would look like for last season uh, so maybe we'll take that off air Tom you can run me through how, how much this season is an outlier or how uh, how much this would be the case each season but I've certainly learned a lot it's, de- it's definitely going to help me plan my weekend viewing in Premier League terms a lot of factors at play for an open and entertaining game some tactical some circumstantial but we've also learned a lot about the perils of single game XG so Uh, I feel like there's been a a lot of benefits to doing this episode. Before I let you guys go, I I am interested, you know, this is essentially a a self-indulgent podcast because I was making you guys do some work for for my own benefit going forward based on what I consider to be a good game, based on what I consider to be the sorts of matches that I want to watch on the television each weekend. I mean, what do you guys consider a a good game to be? Michael, do you have any hard and fast rules for, for games that you... Uh, sort of enjoy the most maybe contradicting myself slightly in terms of what produces a high xg game but i actually quite like games where the the kind of tension is allowed to build at nil nil i think sometimes if there is an early goal immediately one size game plan goes out the window and i quite like having i don't know 20 30 minutes just to see the sides feeling each other out i think in general i quite like sporting contests like that the slightly slow burning things i think of like you know, cyclists doing a track stand before they start going for it or boxers just feeling each other out in the first couple of rounds before it opens up. I kind of like some progression in the game. Um, but that's obviously looking at it from a, a tactical perspective. For me, like an even game is is the best kind of thing, whether it's nil-nil or 3-3. I'd prefer a 3-3 to a nil-nil, but I think people tend to look at nil-nils and think they're automatically boring. Whereas I am quite frustrated generally by a, a 3-0 by halftime when the game's over. That, for me, is, is much less interesting than a game with tension. I think both in terms of within a game and within a season, competitive balance is really the most important thing in sport. It, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because quite often for um, self-interest purposes, the broadcaster of a game that is nil-nil with very few attempts at goal will be described as a tactical battle. Uh, and as the Athletics Tactics writer, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on that overuse of that expression. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a good way for them to kind of sell it, I suppose, or, or, or to imply that there is something interesting going on. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it's necessarily true. I mean, not, not um, this isn't the stuff I've done for the Athletic, but when I was writing a book about essentially the history of the Premier League, I probably watched 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 games. And the most interesting tactical game was Liverpool 4, Newcastle 3, which everyone would say was probably the most exciting Premier League game ever. So... I, I tend to think the most interesting tactical games are actually where there's a little bit of openness and there is something happening and that tends to produce goals. So yeah, I'm not necessarily one who thinks a nil-nil is automatically tactically fascinating. <laughs> and Tom, you're just all about drama, aren't you? I mean, I'm pretty sure certainly in the last few months that the time I, I can I can remember you being most overexcited during a game was that Porto-Juventus the second leg of that Champions League tie where you know your head was just exploding with the drama of it all. My, my viewing experiences completely differ from the way that I actually think about the game in a, in a I guess, professional capacity where I will happily take long-range shots, extremely speculative free kicks, throwing routines, all, all that good stuff which you would never coach on the training ground, which is kind of taboo at this point, I think is always a, is always a, a fun watch for sure never meet your heroes that's that's something of a letdown i was hoping that you'd <laughs> practice what you preach um look guys thank you so much for for your time your expertise on this week's zonal marking podcast thank you guys for listening as well uh, as tom mentioned at the top 
and Michael as well. There's so much to look forward to on site this week. From Michael's perspective, he'll be running the rule over these Champions League knockout games, the first legs of the quarterfinals, some mouthwatering stuff this week. And, and Michael will be breaking those down in the way that he does so well. Uh, Tom's been working on a huge piece uh, which will be going live this week. I'm not going to give anything more away because I think it deserves uh, all of the build-up and all of the intrigue. But make sure you are a subscriber of The Athletic if you're not already. Theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking is the place to be if you'd like to sign up today. You'll be offered a £3.99 monthly price for the first six months of your annual subscription so do make the most of that today and if you listen to this podcast on the athletic site you'll be able to listen ad free as well and leave comments for us for future episodes we're always keen to hear from you Uh, i've got a few dms in the last few weeks future topics questions for the pod we'll certainly get through some of those over the next few weeks and months but thanks for joining us and make sure you tune in again next week to the zonal marking podcast brought to you by the athletic The Athletic.